Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Thank you all for coming. Good morning. Welcome to CSIS. Uh, my name is Matthew Goodman. I hold the Simon Chair in Political Economy here at CSIS. Delighted to welcome you uh, here today. Welcome also to our online uh, viewers always have a good uh, turnout online as well. Uh, so um, welcome to this event, uh, Building Bridges, question mark, uh, Development and Infrastructure in U.S.-China Relations. Uh, this is um, uh, brought to us uh, with the kind sponsorship of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, uh, which has been a supporter of the dialogue that lies behind uh, this event, which I'll explain in just a second. Um, and I will introduce our terrific panel in a second and invite them up. But first, let me uh, just make a couple of administrative announcements. First, as usual, please uh, silence your phones. Um, and uh, if there is any kind of emergency, which is unlikely, we've never had a problem, uh, just follow me. There are emergency stairs down behind here, and we rally at National Geographic uh, one street down on, on M Street. Um, and I think uh, that is all the... I need to say administratively. So um, let me just say that the, um, the actual sort of narrow reason for this event is that we're going to be rolling out a, a series, a collection of essays uh, that have been written by U.S. and Chinese scholars in parallel, separate, uh, separately produced by U.S. and Chinese scholars, um, on the global economic order. Uh, unfortunately, and it's my fault uh, because I'm not uh, a hard enough uh, taskmaster, uh, the actual essays are in publication. They're going to be forthcoming very soon. You, you can, on this piece of paper on the back, you can see the list of the, what the essays are about and who wrote them. And there's a link at the bottom, which is not yet live, but, uh, or actually, Simon Chair link is live, but the essays are not quite up there yet. But in uh, another week or two, they should be up there. So I commend those to you. But um, these essays are the culmination of a um, semi-annual track 1.5, uh, meaning officials uh, and scholars, mostly scholars, uh, dialogues that we've been holding, uh, by the way, sponsored by Carnegie Corporation again, thank you, uh, that we've been running with a group of Chinese scholars for the past uh, four plus years. Um, we um, do semi-annual, as I say, so two meetings a year over two years, and we've done that cycle twice, so we've been doing this for four years, um, and this is the end of the second cycle. Um, our, we're delighted to have been uh, collaborating in this effort with our friends and colleagues at the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, and Ye Yu, one of the uh, scholars there, is with us today, and we're delighted to have her. Um, we call this our GEO dialogue, G-E-O, the Global Economic Order, clever, right? Um, starts with um, acknowledgement that uh, the United States and China, you know, have some serious differences in their bilateral relationship, um, but we share an interest in the functioning of the global economy, and we think it's important to get uh, scholars and officials together on both sides to discuss uh, the problems that we uh, see in the global economy, uh, to look at potential solutions to those problems, where we can agree on solutions, where we can't agree on solutions, uh, look at the institutions, the rules, and the norms that support those solutions, uh, and you know, where we can agree, try to um, uh, look at areas where there could be joint work um, uh, to address those problems, uh, where we can't agree, how do we manage our differences, because uh, we, we need to do that as well. 
honestly, the, the dialogue has not always been e easy, uh, logistically, as well as uh, substantively, uh, but we still think it is, and frankly, it's gotten harder um, over, the, over the time we've done this because, uh, you know, because of the nature of the changes in our relationship, but we still think it's valuable and we think it's um, actually still productive and we have, uh, are determined to continue it. And by the way, Carnegie Corporation has given us another grant to continue it for another two years, so we, uh, we think they think it's important to have this dialogue. So, so that's what this is, the, that's the context of, of uh, today's event. And um, the agenda for the, uh, for the dialogue has generally revolved around the kind of three pillars of the original Bretton Woods system. That is, um, a, 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 we always do a session on sort of macroeconomic, monetary, financial issues, sort of the IMF pillar. Uh, we always do a, a conversation about development. Um, we've obviously talked a lot about infrastructure in that context, uh, the World Bank plus uh, pillar, as it were. And then obviously trade, um, and we've had you know the WTO pillar, and uh, have talked about that a lot. And we've always had scholars who are expert in one or all of those issues, um, and the essays broadly follow that uh, framework as well. Um, again, they're not quite ready, but uh, but when they are, you'll see. I think that we have a kind of an interesting diversity of views about uh, about all those issues. Um, but today, I can offer something better than the papers, the essays, or the pixels uh, behind them, which is the, the authors of at least uh, three of the essays, um, and, um, and plus one special guest, Nancy Lee, who's been involved in this dialogue before, didn't write an essay this time because she's got other more important things to do, but, uh, but she, had, she wrote in the last collection, actually two years ago, um, and she's a real expert in the development issues that we're going to talk about today. So with that, let me invite our panelists to come up and join me on stage, and we'll start a conversation. Okay, so you, you sit there, and then Nancy, Peter. Okay, all right. So well, delighted to be joined by um, friends and colleagues up here, um, and I'll introduce them briefly, although you have bi biographies here, but mainly for the benefit of the people online. Um, so next to me is Dr. Ye Yu, who is Associate Research Fellow and Assistant Director in the Institute for World Economy Studies at the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, or SIIS, as we like to call them. Um, her research focuses on global economic governance, multilateral development banks, the G20, and uh, China's role. We actually met in the G20 circuit uh, many years ago before this uh, started because we were both following uh, G20 developments and met in a, a series of events that they held at SIS, which was very helpful. She's also a visiting fellow here at CSIS, uh, currently another week to go. Sadly, she's going back, but uh, this is her second time as a visiting fellow at CSIS, so we're delighted to have had uh, the pleasure of working with EIU in many contexts. Uh, next to uh, you is Nancy Lee, a former colleague of mine at the US Treasury Department. She's currently Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development. Uh, she's also a senior advisor, non-resident here at, uh, in my, our program at CSIS. Um, Nancy is a real expert in development banks and particularly how they mobilize uh, private finance and increase development impact. Uh, she was Deputy CEO of the Millennium Challenge Corporation uh, she was also the CEO of the Multilateral Investment Fund at the Inter-American Development Bank, so she has real 
uh, broad development chops. Um, and most importantly to me, she served uh, in the Treasury Department. And actually, Nancy's one of those rare people who covers, has covered all the, uh, the pillars of the Bretton Woods system. She and I started in the trade office at the Treasury Department in the late 1980s. Um, she then moved on and sensibly uh, moved on to the IMF uh, office um, and did those issues. And then she eventually moved on to development-related issues. So delighted to have Nancy with us. Uh, next to her is Peter Raymond, uh, senior associate and non-resident, there's a theme here, uh, in our program at CSIS as well. Uh, but uh, um, Peter was um, uh, the advisory leader for the capital projects and infrastructure team at PwC. Uh, he had 30-year career there um, working, as his bio says, at the intersection of the public and private sectors and of infrastructure and financial services on a global basis. Um, he's lived and worked in China. Um, has real expert as a practitioner in the infrastructure business, and he's been really invaluable teacher, uh, really to us as we've uh, looked at this uh, infrastructure story. By the way, shameless advertising, reconnecting Asia is our big uh, project. If you haven't seen it on infrastructure, reconnectingasia.csas.org. Um, Peter is an advisor to that project, and we've got um, a lot of insight there, and hopefully into the infrastructure story. So glad to have Peter with us. And then at the end um, is Stephanie Siegel, who's a senior fellow in our program at CS at, uh, in the Simon Chair, and I think known to many of you. Um, uh, Stephanie, I don't need to read this. Uh, Stephanie uh, had a 15-year career uh, between the US Treasury Department and the IMF, um, and uh, covering uh, various parts of the world and various uh, issues, particularly in that sort of first pillar that I mentioned. So um, delighted to have Stephanie as part of our team, but also here today. So uh, we've got a great group here. And, and by the way, Stephanie is the outlier in the essay sense because she wrote an essay on reserve currencies um, and the RMB's role and so forth. But she also has thoughts and comments on the, on the development infrastructure story that we're going to uh, start out with uh, before we get to her specific essay. OK, with that, let me start actually with, um, with Peter. And I'm going to, you wrote an essay on, um, on uh, infrastructure, and you say in your paper, quote, perhaps less understood has been the relationship between infrastructure development and the efficiency and effectiveness of global supply chains. So that was kind of interesting to me because it's not something that, you know, I think we normally think about infrastructure connected to global supply chains. Can you explain this? And before you talk about the recommendations in your paper, um, sort of what's the importance of infrastructure? What's the role of infrastructure? Why are we talking about this subject so much these days in Washington? Sure, thanks, Matt. Um, pleasure to be here today and happy to have contributed to the compendium of really terrific essays um, in this um, um, effort that CSIS um, has launched. Um, I think it's helpful to understand the, uh, the context uh, of Asia. I think it's, it's not as well understood, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, perhaps in Europe, how important Asia is economically in the world. So if we take a look at a uh, recent IMF uh, report on global economic outlook, um, Asia represented 46% of global GDP on a purchasing power parity basis, compared with 20% for Europe and just 18% for North America. And if you look at the growth rates in Asia, 6.6% um, projected growth rate of GDP in Asia compared with less than 2% for North America and Europe in 2020. These are, this is IMF data. Um, and then look at population, about 60% of the world's population lives in Asia. 
Um, and Asia is really a, an incredible story of growth and economic development over the past couple of decades. And in particular, that has been aided and abetted by good economic policies, um, the global trade regimes, but particularly by infrastructure. And the development and growth and, and construction of infrastructure has enabled um, economic development and poverty alleviation in, in really a dramatic fashion. Um, and unfortunately, um, the, the expectations for growth in Asia over the coming decade are really, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, are dependent on infrastructure investment. And the unfortunate part of it is that the ADB has said something like $1.7 trillion per year is needed in infrastructure trillion investment. Trillion with a T. Trillion with a T, yeah, in, uh, in Asia uh, over the next 10 years to just continue this trajectory of growth. But only about half of that is going to be met by traditional means to date. Now, into this, um, into this breach uh, steps China with arguably the best infrastructure-led development story in the world. Um, China, as most of you know, has invested heavily in infrastructure and has been a major driver of their economy. And now as part of their significant foreign policy is the, um, is the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, that initiative uh, could invest as much as a trillion or more dollars in Asia and around the world in new infrastructure development. Well, to come back to your question, Matt, about these global supply chains, um, one of the things that infrastructure enables, obviously, is the, is the specialization of investment in certain components of global supply chains. And what has emerged over the past decade in particular is this competition between global supply chains. Who can source components and inputs most efficiently and effectively from a variety of different countries based on the economic capacity of those countries, the infrastructure in place in those countries, um, and the competitive advantage of trade regimes, et cetera, with those countries. And one of the interesting dimensions of China's Belt and Road Program is, is China building, in effect, competing global economic supply chains through the BRI projects that will compete with the Western supply chains, particularly around issues of the emerging technologies. Um, we've, we've heard a lot about um, China's 2025 plans, uh, Made in China 2025, and the leading technologies China wants to invest in. Well, as China moves its economy from a manufacturing base to more of a services base, from a low uh, cost production base to um, a high-end uh, value-added base, how do these countries in Asia contribute to its development of supply chains to feed those competing um, industries? And, and this is the point I was trying to make in, in the paper is that uh, we often look at the Belt and Road Program from a kind of a military standpoint or a political standpoint, but there are some deep economic supply chain issues also involved in the question about where China is going with BRI. Okay, um, if I can just, I told you he was a good teacher. I already just learned something right there. I hope you did as well. Um, but uh, if I could just ask Peter, to you to continue by telling us, because you say in your paper something that isn't necessarily intuitive in Washington these days, that there is actually scope, unquestionably scope, for U.S.-China cooperation in this area in infrastructure, and you have a few recommendations for where we could cooperate. Could you just quickly I, sort of go through those? Yeah, I do, Matt, and I, I think that's really important that we seek these areas of cooperation because where we can cooperate, it will uh, redound to the benefit, particularly 
of the countries in which the infrastructure is being built. And, th and this is really important for those countries, obviously, but it also benefit the China-US uh, relationship and China and the West relationship. The first area of cooperation is actually jointly undertaking projects together, BRI projects together. There are tremendous number of projects that have been identified through BRI and other mechanisms where China and, let's say, the US or the West could actively cooperate. And there are some distinct benefits of that. China has, is a world leader in engineering and construction. And we have excellent firms in the West as well, also world leaders. But there are some things that the Chinese have been able to do much more quickly than, um, than Western companies, modular construction, the use of technology and delivering infrastructure, and the like, which would be of benefit to Western companies as well. But what I argue in the paper is that we need to do these joint projects on an open and transparent standard. Um, because that will allow both the countries and those who are observing the projects um, being developed to understand that they're being done with environmental and social consequences taken fully into account, labor consequences being taken into account, effective feasibility studies related to um, economic growth and development in those countries. So that's the first area of cooperation. The second is in, in standard setting. Uh, China has, um, has argued that the standards that exist are not always uh, favorable to China or Chinese companies. And yet there are standards for infrastructure development and delivery that have been developed over many years by the multilateral development banks and by many other institutions in the world, which are really good, reliable standards. So I, I suggest that China and the West could come together and look at these standards to see how a set of standards could be agreed upon between both China and the West for the design, development, procurement, and financing of infrastructure projects. And the third area of cooperation, I think, is, is perhaps the most exciting. And that is um, that there are literally trillions of dollars in pension funds and um, insurance funds that would be attracted to infrastructure investment around the world if some of the risks of those investments, particularly in emerging economies, were better mitigated. And China has demonstrated a real um, aptitude for managing host country risks and some of the risks associated with infrastructure projects. If we could combine some of the risk techniques that China has employed with financial instruments uh, from the West, I think we could probably unlock a significant amount of capital for infrastructure investment, not just in Asia, but elsewhere around the world in emerging economies. So I think these three areas represent high impact areas for cooperation. It's not necessarily going to be easy um, to do them, but they are worthwhile areas for us to cooperate in. Terrific. Okay, that's a very clear and cogent agenda, and we're going to, I'm sure, come back to several of those, uh, those points. But let me uh, bring you into the conversation. Um, so you said in your paper, which was mainly about the, the MDBs, the Multilateral Development Bank, sorry for acronym speak, um, but that's uh, occupational hazard at CSIS, you'll find. Um, so the MDBs, uh, like the World Bank, the AIB, uh, the, that is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, have, quote, more room to maneuver, and you were comparing it to the WTO and the trade issues. They have more room to maneuver um, and can play a bigger role in bridging differences between the two countries. Can you explain that, um, you, and um, explain you know, how you approach that in your paper? Uh, thank you very much, Matthew. Uh, before I answer your questions, uh, I think I have some uh, duty <laughs> to uh, 
um, thank uh, all the Chinese uh, authors um, of the of the collection of the essay. First, I'm very honored to be part of the uh, panel uh, panelist discussion of today. Uh, I'm personally involved in the uh, dialogue, uh, as Matthew mentioned in the beginning. Uh, it's a very rewarding uh, experience for me. And uh, actually, uh, for as you say, uh, see in your seat, there are five uh, authors led by President uh, Chen Dongxiao of SIS. And uh, I would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, all of them, uh, Professor Zhang Haibing and uh, Professor Zhang Ming, also uh, Professor Lu Xiankun and also Lu Chuanyin. You can see their introduction. Actually, uh, in addition to this, uh, these six authors here, we have even more Chinese participants in the past uh, uh, five years. So I would like to thank all of them for their uh, contribution to our dialogue. And, um, but uh, uh, forgive me that I cannot cover all the papers that they wrote, so I just focus on my own. And uh, I would uh, just uh, uh, come back to the question that uh, Matthew asked. Uh, my piece focuses on the uh, rule of MDB. As you all know that the uh, China-US relations currently seems to be uh, facing great difficulties. Every morning we woke up, we saw more bad news, new bad news. So it's really not a good period. Uh, I think there are many issues, but I think a fundamental one is the lack of trust between the two sides. So we need a third party that both sides can have more trust to act as a bridge. The topic of our dialogue today is about the building bridges. So what are the bridges? So we need a third party that both sides can trust. And my answer is that uh, uh, look at the international organizations. Uh, I think the MDB, the multilateral development banks, um, are the type of uh, third party that have more uh, uh, capacity and also more uh, maneuver uh, for the both sides to, to, be, uh, to act as a bridge. Uh, three major points about that. The first one is MDB's rule. Their function actually are very much related to the common interests of both sides. As Peter has elaborated, I won't, I won't stress anymore. The infrastructure issue is something that uh, both left and west, east and west have consensus within the United States and beyond the United States and China. Of course, so that's a, that's an issue that uh, both countries uh, face, and uh, uh, also the MDB's rule actually are playing a bigger role in the infrastructure financing, especially in developing countries. And uh, uh, secondly, the second uh, reason of that is 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 uh, very related to the maneuver that Matthew mentioned. I think the MDBs compared to the other international organizations they have relatively big budget. And the budget actually relies more on capital market on, uh, rather than on the big shareholders. So they are relatively more independent, more independence. And also, more importantly, they have a large pool of expertise that cannot be controlled by shareholders. So that's why I said they have more maneuver 
they are uh, relatively independent from the shareholders. And thirdly, it's also the last not the least. I think both countries have uh, the sense of ownership and the incentive to use MDB, to rely, rely on the MDBs. For the United States, I think undoubtedly, the United States still is the biggest shareholder of all the, uh, all the major MDBs, World Bank, ADB, and uh, the major uh, regional ones. So, so the US uh, still, not, not, not necessarily it can, it can veto everything, but uh, it's still the most important shareholder. And for China, Actually, China is uh, the third largest shareholder in the World Bank. But uh, after the uh, successful launching of the AIB and NDB that China hosts, the two, the two new institutions, I think for, for China, it feels much more uh, encouraged by the success. So it is much more active in, in relying on MDBs to uh, uh, cooperate with the world including the United States, of course. One example is the, uh, in 2016, when China hosted the G20, it actually very, very, uh, it spent a lot of uh, uh, um, efforts in trying to mobilize the MDBs in uh, doing the infrastructure financing. So both sides have the, have the ownership, although China got the ownership indirectly, probably. And uh, so that's uh, uh, the main reason why I, I see this uh, MDBs can play a specific role. And if we look at the reality, look at the, the past two years, we have seen the MDBs actually expanded because of the competition. Actual competition leads to good results. The MDBs, uh, their uh, infrastructure financing actually expanded quite a lot. Uh, like um, every year it, it increased 10%. It's, it's, uh, the, the growth rate is even higher than the average uh, uh, MDB's asset expansion. So uh, we do see their problems. Actually, even la the, uh, especially last year, in 2018, we have seen a lot of uh, uh, news high, uh, um, highlighting the Mr. Malpass, the current uh, World Bank's uh, president, actually was very critical about the Belt and the Road and with MDB saying multilateralism has gone too far. But uh, He said that when he was at the U.S. Treasury. Uh, yes, right, yes. Not since he's been at the World yeah, Bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That time he was working for the U.S. Treasury. But now I, I think after he became the World Bank's president, uh, his, his tone changed, uh, I mean, quite a lot. He just visited China and had a very good dialogue with uh, Premier Li Keqiang. So everything in the World Bank looks like back to the normal. So, uh, so we have seen quite, uh, so when the uh, Trump administration was uh, criticized a lot, all the multilateral institutions, uh, I personally think the MDB actually is the area that's relatively less affected. So uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, uh, something that is, uh, we, we can keep uh, caution, caution, optimistic. So for the next steps, do you have steps? Well, why, do why don't I pause and let, uh, because yes. I do want to ask yeah, you yeah. about your specific ideas, yeah. um, but if it's okay, um, sure. let me just, though, before I turn to Nancy, let me just make a point about something you said, which is that 
Um, the addition of the AIB and the, um, and the BRICS Bank, as it were, the new development bank, um, has provided some competition and that's sort of stepped up the game of the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and other banks. You didn't mention those, but that's what the implication was. Uh, I think this is a really important point, that competition in our world, in the economics world, is not necessarily a bad thing. It actually can raise the game. Uh, competition in this town is talked about in sort of zero-sum terms, but actually it's, it's a potentially important development, and I just want to stress that, but I do want to come back to you in a second, okay. if it's okay. Sure. Um, but Nancy, let me bring you in, and let me do this by, uh, if I can pull it up. Uh, the New York Times top story this morning is um, climate change threatens the world's food supply, the United Nations warns, and there's a fairly frightening um, report from the United Nations about climate change and, and the implications for the food supply. You're not an expert in food, and I don't expect you to comment on that, but this is the kind of international development challenge, it seems to me, that the U.S. and China both have compelling or, you know, sort of pressing interest in. Um, does that suggest that there is a possibility for the U.S. and China to work together on issues like that? And if so, how and, and what are the challenges to doing that? Or, you know, more broadly, what are the challenges in the, in the development world that you think um, uh, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a need to move more quickly on. Thanks, Matt. Actually, I'm quite a good cook, but, but you probably don't want a recitation. Oh, food, yes. So you're an expert in that way, right? Um, uh, first of all, I'm very happy to be participating in this discussion with such an excellent set of panelists, and I can see already that there is a lot of complementarity between what I'm about to say and what my colleagues have just said. Um, so what I will do is sort of talk about the landscape of finance from the perspective of low-income countries, which are largely on the front lines of the climate change and the food security effects that um, Matt just mentioned. Um, so let's just briefly, I want to talk about what the landscape look like, looks like. It's not a lot of good news. There, there is some good news, and I want to highlight that. Um, and then I want to make the case that multilateral approaches and multilateral institutions are central, particularly for low-income countries, and I think I'm, I'm in agreement with what my colleagues have said. So first of all, we've heard a lot about trillions of dollars of finance gaps. Um, let me make it sort of real from the perspective of low-income countries. The IMF estimates that on average, low-income countries, in order to meet SDG-related investment needs, must mobilize 14 percentage points of GDP in additional expenditure. So they have to increase their expenditure by 14 percentage points of GDP. So clearly they have to increase their revenue mobilization, their taxation. But let's say they can do five percentage points more. That would be ambitious, as the IMF has indicated. That leaves a lot of finance that they have to mobilize. Um, so, so if you look at infrastructure in particular, what's coming in from the private sector, and if you look at infrastructure globally for low-income countries that has both private and public participation, you see that in 2018, the IDA countries, the poorest countries, received their lowest level of private investment in 10 years, 47% um, lower than the average in the last five five years, and I apologize for throwing out a lot of numbers, but it gives you a, um, a, a sense of the, of the size and depth of the problem. At the same time, 
you have a very rapid buildup uh, in debt in low-income countries. 40% um, are either in debt distress or at risk of debt distress as of 2018, again, according to the IMF. The average debt in sub-Saharan Africa increased from 37% to 56% from 2012 to 2016, clearly an unsustainable pace of debt buildup. Now, China is one of those major creditors uh, of African countries, uh, and an estimated 20% of African government debt is owed to China. It is not only China, um, which is uh, creditored uh, with rapid rising in lending into Africa. It is also um, private commercial lending sources. It's, it's a little bit hard because of the lack of data and the transparency issue to get completely accurate figures. Okay, so that's, so big gaps, big buildup in debt, very little private financing for infrastructure. <clears throat> okay, so what's the good news? The good news is, um, according to research we've done at CGD, on what happened to private capital flows to low-income countries since the global financial crisis. And we expected to find not very good news, Every, you know, investors much more risk-averse after the crisis. Actually, the news is pretty good. Private capital flows to low-income countries since the global financial crisis now for the median low-income country are about 7% of GDP, which is about the same as the aid share of GDP. The aid share for the median country has fallen. The private investment share has increased. So it is not true that low-income countries cannot attract private investment. It's also not all about natural resources. Much of that finance is going to uh, non-resource-rich countries. Um, and most of, most of that finance is actually foreign direct investment. So we're talking about long-term, stable, uh, capital formation-inducing uh, investment in low-income countries. So you have a bad news story on the kind of short-term debt uh, or the, the um, size of debt related to GDP, but you have a good news story in terms of FDI, foreign direct investment. Now, China, there's a lot of emphasis on China's lending. China is also a rapidly growing foreign direct investor in Africa. So China is contributing to these very uh, significant long-term direct investment flows. It is now almost as large in terms of its FDI stock as the UK, the US, and France, the traditional big investors um, in Africa. So it's clear China is in Africa for the long term. It has a big stake. It has a big stake in Africa's success. And also, China is not only investing in resource extraction. A, a similar amount is actually investing in construction or, and this is FDI investment. So this is productive capacity in construction. So again, this, these are long-term flows for the, for the purpose of building up uh, capital stocks. So, Okay, so you put all that together, you got some good news and you got some bad news. But um, you still have this enormous challenge of helping the low-income countries avoid a debt trap on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, meet the SDG goals. So just uh, let me very briefly make four points about what the multilaterals can do. First of all, again, just building on what my colleagues have said, 
transparency and sustainability. Actually, the multilateral system is pretty good at that. China does not have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to transparency and sustainability. Um, there are debt sustainability analysis that the IMF and the World Bank do, which are the gold standard, I think, by anybody's estimation. There is the Paris Club, which is the official creditors um, uh, group, which has been operating for many years, uh, transparently and collectively. There is actually new, a new development on the part of that, that's been launched by the International Institute for Finance on debt transparency pr principles for private lenders, bringing private lenders into the equation. So we know that China has just introduced a debt sustainability analysis, which is a good thing. It's a little puzzling to me why, um, why introduce one that when they already exist in a multilateral sense, but I at least think it would be great if China implemented its debt sustainability analysis in consultation with the IMF and the World Bank. So that's number one, transparency and sustainability. Um, number two, clearly more concessional finance is needed for low-income countries. So China could decide to make more of its development finance concessional, one option. Um, another option, which seems to me uh, at least as efficient and, and effective, is to contribute more uh, in cooperation with the United States to the con big concessional finance pool, which is the IDA pool in the World Bank, the pool of concessional finance for poor countries. China is now the 11th largest donor to IDA. It's rapidly increased its contribution, but of course it's nowhere near China's role in the global economy. So, um, and we're not seeing that IDA is actually investing in infrastructure where private money is most scarce, which is transport and water and sanitation, and China and the U.S. could collectively influence both the size of the IDA resources available and the allocation of that money for infrastructure. Uh, very quickly, project selection. Um, I, this is really, I, I think, the point that was already made, which is um, the MDBs are very good at project selection standards. Um, ESG standards, anti-corruption standards, cost-benefit analyses. And so China can do a lot of, can and should do a lot of financing itself, but I think in terms of project selection and design, it could, it could collaborate closely to, for mutual benefit with the multilaterals. And then finally on climate finance, going to um, the point that Matthew raised, you know, the, the additional evidence that came out this morning about the importance of climate finance. There just is not enough climate finance. If you look at the climate investment funds at the World Bank, they now total something like $8 billion. It's just not big enough. So um, we, and we seem to be going down the route of creating more trust funds or trying to mobilize more and more money for trust funds. I would argue you need something, perhaps under the auspices of the World Bank, that is a self-contained uh, permanent entity with its own governance structure focused on climate finance, all aspect of climate finance. And I think China would have a great benefit if it took a leadership role in creating such a structure because it, it could dominate the governance of that uh, new entity in a way that's difficult to do when it's trying to um, increase its share in the existing governance structure of the World Bank. So, and there are, many, there are a number of ways that thing could be financed, but um, I think going more bold, almost creating an, a green bank within a bank, 
uh, in the World Bank is something that needs to be considered at this point. Excellent. Great. Well, that was a great, um, um, again, menu, uh, to use the food uh, metaphor again. Um, and, and we'll come back to some of that. I have a specific question to follow up on. But let me bring Stephanie into the conversation. You wrote, a, as I mentioned, on, on a different topic, and I want you to uh, introduce that, um, the reserve currency. But, but first, I mean, if you have thoughts on the discussion so far, including on this question of debt sustainability and sort of bringing an IMF sensibility to that, that would be a really interesting place to start. Sure. Yeah, happy to do that, and thanks for uh, the invitation to join the panel, even though I'm a little bit of, as you said, a little bit of an, an outlier in terms of the topic of the essay. But I think the only thing I would say is really just to amplify the points that the other panelists have made. And to me, there's kind of a theme of responsible stakeholder across all of the commentaries that were made, um, Peter clearly made the point about the link between infrastructure and global growth, and the fact that global growth obviously benefits the US, China, and third countries. But really, the, the kind of necessary element to have sustainable growth is really contingent on an open, transparent standard, which also gets to the point that you was making about kind of the power of the independent third parties and their credibility, um, and their credibility really being dependent on um, this kind of transparency point and that there are responsible actors that are holding up the transparency and the technical standards of those institutions. It's really, in my view, the strength of those institutions. It's the membership, of course, and kind of the buy-in, but it's also the faith that there's the technical skill in these institutions that you can trust the credibility of the work. And I think that might go most directly to your question on debt sustainability that Nancy had also mentioned. Um, the, the credibility of the debt sustainability analysis that the IMF does and that the World Bank does is that it's based on objective analysis conducted by economists and experts from all over the world based on the data that they have and their best assumptions about the future. And that kind of common standard is something that the recipient countries as well as creditor countries that are financing infrastructure investment can believe in. And it's that sort of credibility that then mobilizes even additional investment. So I, I think just to echo the points that you've all made and really kind of grounding it in that credibility and that trust piece is really quite essential. Um, Do you want so, to introduce your paper? Yeah, now on, if I switch gears to something that is, is quite different. I guess it actually is linked a bit to, to Nancy's commentary and looking at the FDI developments um, because we're talking then about the capital account side of the equation for countries. And, and what Nancy mentioned about the increasing FDI flows from China to Africa, Africa is reflective of increasing capital account integration. Um, and that does link somewhat to the topic of my essay, which was on reserve currencies. Um, a couple things that I'll just highlight. Um, so as Matt mentioned, the essays were ones where CSIS and SIIS agreed on the headline topic um, that we would each write on, but that was really the extent of the collaboration. So it was interesting then that the writer on the US side and the writer on the Chinese side would then come back and read what the contribution was based on that common understanding of the topic, but then their own interpretation of what they should be writing on. Um, I would say I was 
really interested to see the partner essay to mine was written by Dr. Zhang at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And there were some common themes between our two essays and to just highlight two of them. So we were focused on the international monetary system and the, um, the dominant reserve currency, um, currently the US dollar. Uh, we both made a comment on spillovers from a system where you have a dominant currency where domestic policies are driving decisions by the domestic policymaker, but there are spillovers from those policies. And I think anyone just needs to follow <laughs> movements and decisions by the Fed to understand that those decisions are driven largely by domestic economic conditions in the United States, but the spillovers from those decisions are clearly global. So we both made that comment in, in our essays. And the other kind of key point of commonality is that both of our essays foresee a larger role for the RMB in the global system. And I think that is a function of China being the world's second largest economy, um, having a growth trajectory that by various estimates have it as the largest economy in the next 10, 20, years, and it's also the largest trade economy. So the global linkages that China have are already quite evident. And if anything, you would actually expect the RMB to have a larger role in the global system than it currently has. So those were two kind of common themes between the two essays. Um, we also had different, I wouldn't say points of divergence, but maybe different points of emphasis that we made in our two essays. Um, the first, I would say, I spent some time in mine, uh, just explaining how it was that the dollar got to be in the dominant position that it is. And the point there is the foundation for that is sound macroeconomic policies, deep and liquid capital markets, rule of law, and currency convertibility. So a currency doesn't just come become a global currency by, by fiat. You have to have the enabling conditions. Um, and then the second point, which I also emphasized, in my essay was that in order for the RMB to be a bigger presence globally, um, that there are certain policies that would need to be implemented, and first and foremost among them is increased convertibility of the currency. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. I realize that that is quite a divergence <laughs> from the other topics, well, but I, I think... I, I suspect... Um you're not going to get out of this room without talking about more immediate um, currency <laughs> questions that have arisen uh, today. So that's actually a good sort of um, backdrop to, the, to, to that story, which um, I'm sure we'll come back to. But thank you. Um, so you let me now give you a chance to, to talk more about your sort of specific ideas. And let me maybe start by saying you mentioned um, something that I am interested in and I don't know enough about, which is um, this new um, center, cooperation center, the Multilateral Cooperation Center for Development Finance, which is a Chinese finance ministry initiated I uh, idea uh, that the multilateral development banks have all signed on to, I think substantially all. And it's a, a center that's sort of housed in the AIIB to work on um, sort of a common, common standards or approaches to infrastructure finance in the Belt and Road Initiative, is that right? So, so first of all, can you explain what that is and why it's significant? And, and, and then sort of try to help us explain, because 
it's in the AIB, but it's a Belt and Road related um, initiative. I thought those were different things. And, and China sort of went to pains initially to say the AIIB was a multilateral development bank over here. Belt and Road was a, a different initiative you know, aimed at um, promoting you know, uh, infrastructure investment. And now they seem to be sort of merging together. Are they now one thing? Or? Thank you. <laughs> uh, this probably I'm not the uh, uh, the best one to answer the specific question about the uh, new uh, MDFC, the, the multilateral development financing center, uh, which was uh, so. I'm, I think this new the, the, this news uh, was not formally announced yet, which will be uh, based in AIB and. Uh, According to my personal knowledge, this center was originally uh, to be located, to be based in the World Bank, probably due to some technical reasons, probably will move to uh, AIB. But uh, whatever, the, the function will not change. Uh, the basic function of the center um, is, to, is to be mainly about the project preparation information sharing, project preparation, and also capacity building. So uh, as, as, as Nancy said about the project preparation, actually is, is, is a very important aspect. Uh, actually, the center wa was mainly to, uh, to help to, or, or to uh, mobilize all the MDBs together as a system. To do uh, to do things on the infrastructure, so details I think uh, we need we need to see. Um, the actually many MD, there there are many similar uh, project preparation facilities uh, were established in the in the past several years. So we hope this one can uh, actually. To, to help um, harmonize or to uh, join efforts of the different MDBs to work together. That's a, uh, that's a technical one. I see. I'm only representing myself. Sure. <laughs> we, need, uh, we need to. And uh, the, sec the second part of your question about the relationship of the AIB and the BRI, I think it's not uh, specifically related to uh, AIB and BRI. Probably you should ask a question more about uh, all the MDBs and BRI. AIB is just uh, one of them. And uh, my understanding is that uh, uh, AIB actually the, the President King himself, uh, Jing Yichun himself, he, he didn't avoid that. He didn't say that AIB is, is, has nothing to do with BRI. He actually, uh, I think all the MDBs, they should uh, People talk about the uh, the uh, MDB system as system. Actually, an even bigger issue is the MDBs and all the bi bilateral initiatives as a system. So, which one is uh, so? How to link the bilateral one and the multilateral one is is even a bigger issue because the size of the bilateral financing for infrastructure is even bigger. So, so I think if the AIB and all the other MDBs can work together better with the BRI, I think that's a, that's a good thing. If we look at the Marshall Plan, actually the World Bank was a bit marginalized by the Marshall Plan. So probably that's not the best scenario. 
and uh, um, so uh, so I personally think they, they can work together and should work together for better and also work together with the US initiatives to like the Indo-Pacific strategy. I think I think all the bilateral uh, initiatives should be um, linked through the MDBs and uh, at the country level. So the country level, how to balance the different initiatives and uh, uh, maximize the development impact, that's a, that's a real issue. Okay, was there anything else in your paper that you wanted to put an accent on? I didn't want to cut you off from talking about any other points in your paper, or shall I move on? We don't have a huge amount of time, so and I want to get, give the audience a chance, but I wanted to give you a chance to like anything uh, probably, else in your paper that probably some some suggestions for how the two countries can do together yep, uh, uh, through the MDBs I think the first one the major point is both countries should support but not to intervene the operations of the MDBs like the uh, how to support I think uh, people talk a lot about mobilizing the private sector but without increasing support of the public sector, and the private sector will not be able to mobilize uh, enough. So they like the IFC's capital increase, Nancy knows a lot about that. I think US should uh, give it support. The US Congress should approve the IFC's capital increase package. And uh, uh, secondly, the, the other uh, support for, for, uh, for example, I think, uh, uh, I can talk more about later, probably about the uh, both sides can the uh, standard issue. I personally think China is, is open to the standards of the MDBs, and uh, on this aspect, a lot can be can be done later. So, just some examples on that. Well, maybe, yes. If we have time, let's come back. Let me actually ask Peter about the standards question because you've been a practitioner and sort of seen this stuff on the ground. I mean, what, what is it about the standards that the, the U.S. has traditionally deployed that are important, and, um, and, and uh, you know, what, where, where have you seen a, a different approach from China, and where are those differences significant, or is there convergence in, in the approach to, uh, to infrastructure on the ground? Yeah, so the, what, what you find with U.S. firms and most Western firms is that they do follow procedures that are very uh, much reflected in uh, World Bank and IFC and MDB guidelines, right? It's about how do you select the right projects that are going to have the right um, economic, social, and environmental impacts on a country, or how do you measure those impacts so you can make a decision about which projects to build and which not to build. Um, and along with that are, are issues of resettlement and, and downstream pollution and, um, and these sorts of things. And, and so there's a whole set of standards and procedures that begin with, you know, how do you identify a project, how do you conduct due diligence around these particular issues, then how do you bring a project to market um, so that it's either financed by the private sector or can be financed in a bilateral or multilateral way. And so there's a, it's a whole project preparation phase, which frankly can take um, two years and sometimes five years. Uh, depending on the project and its complexity uh, and the like. But the end result is that you typically get projects that are pretty well selected, where the issues are pretty well identified, where the financing is understood, and there's a transparent process in which the project came to fruition. Um, the criticism of China's BRI projects, at least many of them, has been 
that they haven't followed many of those standards and that, in fact, projects are selected quickly. Um, some of these uh, standards are, are done in a very superficial way if they're followed uh, at all. Uh, the projects are sole source procured uh, for uh, Chinese companies and then they are built and delivered in a way that ha can have negative social and environmental uh, as well as economic consequences from a debt sustainability standpoint. Um, and, um, but the, I think the, the interesting thing to note is that for many of these developing countries who have had projects like this on their books for years, um, suddenly China is showing up and say, okay, well, you've wanted to have this hydroelectric facility uh, for 20 years, and we can get it done for you in two to three years, whereas through the standard process, you haven't been able to get anything done in, in 20 years, or if they do launch a standard process, it'll take three to five years before you can actually get under construction. So China has been able to really deliver um, infrastructure that many countries have desired um, in a much more rapid fashion, but there have been consequences, environmental, social, and economic consequences to doing that in, in certain cases. I think what we're seeing now is that there is some convergence. China has been um, very responsive, I think, to some of the criticisms that have been raised around how projects have been developed and financed. And you see the release of, um, of this uh, financial accountability standards uh, on the part of uh, China in, in concert with the IMF. They set up a center uh, with the PBOC and IMF to try to develop a, a fiscal stability, uh, sustainability standards, and other, and other aspects. But, but BRI is a, is a massive effort that is being, um, uh, being led or driven in large part by state-owned enterprises that are operating in countries around the world. And so it's not as centrally orchestrated, I think, as people think. But I do see more convergence happening, and I think that's going to be a good thing. Uh, not just uh, obviously for China, but particularly for the host countries who are benefiting from these infrastructure. Projects. Yeah, and to note that the, the President Xi Jinping did say at the Belt and Road Forum in April um, that uh, it touched on some of those points about greater transparency and sustainability from an environmental and a debt point of view, and that China was going to work on that. Plus, all leaders of the G20 signed on to something called the Quality Infrastructure Principles at the Osaka Summit. We talked about that the other day at an event here on the G20 Osaka uh, event. And, um, and those principles you know, seem to be you know, more in line with the kinds of things you've been talking about. And everybody signed on to that, China, US, Japan, everybody. So, um, so that does feel like there's at least an attempt to bring convergence. Mm -hmm. you know, mostly those are words. And we'll yeah. see how they, they get actually rolled out in reality. I think that's the, the question, is whether you know, the pudding is going to taste as good as it looks <laughs> in the, um, on, the, on the menu. Um, okay, uh, Nancy, just a quick question. I do want to bring the audience in, but just you mentioned in passing in the, your advocacy for greater transparency or your, your suggestion that that's one thing that would be important here, um, the Paris Club. Um, can you just in 30 seconds, elevator terms, tell us why the Paris Club is important and why China should be, it's an observer in the Paris Club, but not a full member and it's not bound by, well, nobody's bound, it's a, it's a sort of I guess it's not politically correct to say a gentleman's understanding anymore, but it's a, it's a, it's a non-binding set of um, principles for transparency and sort of debt sustainability uh, and how to uh, unwind um, debt problems. Uh, China is not a member, but an observer. Should China be a member, and what would that do? Um, I think China should be a member. I think um, it's been a functional organization, the Paris Club specifically, for 
uh, decades. Uh, its purpose is essentially, first and foremost, to share official credit data to, um, to any country, but particularly developing countries. Um, there is a collective interest in knowing um, the uh, credit landscape. You have, you have sort of free rider problems if people are lending into situations where they don't know um, the size of credits that other people are offering. You have a free rider problem, but you also have a, um, a risk if um, there isn't transparency about the extent of credits. If you're lending into situations where you don't know actually at the indebtedness of the borrowing country. So there's an obvious transparency function of the Paris Club. The Paris Club then, in situations where there are debt sustainability problems, as established by the IMF, the IMF is the arbiter of um, imminent threat of default, which is the trigger in um, Paris Club negotiations. Um, the Paris Club is the place where the official creditors come together and discuss what a debt rescheduling or uh, including a reduction in principle should look like. So it is driven by an objective assessment of the debt sustainability situation. And then there is a collective negotiation among the creditors. All creditors are to be treated comparably. So it addresses the interests that all creditors have, that no one is put uh, ahead of the queue in terms of repayment, which is another reason. Um, you know, it, it is good for China um, in the sense that it, it is treated the same as other creditors. Um, credit, China may believe that in certain circumstances it has leverage and wants to be treated better than other creditors, but that's a double-edged sword. Um, there will be a, a, occasions where China will benefit from uh, being a, a, a part of a collective creditor approach to um, debtor countries. And as I described earlier, we now have a situation where we have a bunch of low-income countries in serious debt distress. So this is not an abstract issue. This is a train that's um, uh, coming toward the creditor countries uh, pretty rapidly. And the last thing I would say is that the Paris Club is also instrumental in the sort of global financial landscape because it sets the standard in many cases for what debt restructuring looks like and that standard then applies to private creditors. So often, the Paris Club goes first in the restructuring process, and then it sets a benchmark, which the private creditors um, then follow. So that creates a system where um, there is a, a mechanism through which both public and private creditors can participate in helping a country return to debt. Uh, sustainability based on you know, an objective analysis of what would make the country sustainable. So there, I, there is real, not really any um, conceptual reason that China shouldn't be part of the Paris Club at the stage of full participant, not just an observer. And just again to now advertise for, for your uh, esteemed institution, the Center for Global Development, there was a great report you did last year on, on debt distress and looking at countries that were particularly, um, uh, uh, had already high debt positions and were borrowing significantly through Belt and Road and identified eight countries in particular that were um, at the top uh, level of risk um, for some debt distress. And so that was, a, I commend that report to you. It was really interesting and very well written. My, my colleague Scott Morris. Scott Morris wrote, yeah. 
Um, we don't have a lot of time, but Stephanie, do you want to add anything to that about the Paris Club or any other dimension of this before we turn to the audience? No, I, um, as you all know, and I don't know to the extent this group knows, but this has been a topic of discussion for a number of years. Um, back in the kind of 2015-2016 timeframe, it looked like China was actually getting much closer to, to joining, and there's definitely been a pullback from that, but I agree 100% with Nancy. There's, it's a problem with the system when you have a large official creditor um, not part of the process that helps to reestablish debt sustainability for the countries um, under debt distress. Um, the, the one other piece that I would just flag, and a lot of the work that has been happening at the international financial institutions have emphasized transparency, but transparency on both sides. And so it's transparency on the part of the creditor lender who is providing the capital, but it's also transparency on the part of recipient countries. And so I think as we're talking about kind of responsible actors here and, and whose responsibility and role it is, I think this is very much a two-way street. And so transparency on both sides of the equation are really essential here. So I just want to make and sure And this is that something that both the U.S. and China should have an interest in and should be working together Absolutely. to ensure that recipient countries are transparent, not corrupt, doing all the things that are, uh, that are important here yep. uh, to, uh, to ensuring this finance has the impact that, that is sought. Okay, uh, a thousand other things we could get into here, not enough time. Uh, I want to give the audience a chance to ask a few questions. So if, if uh, you do have a question, raise your hand and uh, please do ask, identify yourself and ask a question. I'm going to take three in a row, this gentleman here, that woman there, and then the gentleman way in the back there. Uh, Chris McRae, Norman McRae Foundation. So I was at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, Annual Summit 2017 in South Korea. I'm just a statistician, I don't understand, you know, sovereign banks and all these things. But what was interesting was seeing 100 delegations debate basically two things. One was infrastructure and the gap uh, on that. And the other was on, you know, possibly sustainability development goals. And as you listen to people, you hear that there's up to $300 trillion, CIS has called it $100 trillion, but other people call it $300 trillion of liquid finance in the West, but it never gets to either the infrastructure investment banking or the SDGs because they're not asset grade. So the question is there, how, how could you change this because you know, in, in Asia, this gets huge publicity on the CNN for Asia, but you, you never see any of this discussed, or I've never seen it discussed really in America, because it, it is a huge gap, both on the infrastructure side for the global supply chains and for, you know, really so big So how to problems. get this capital, uh, this Well, how to get the debate between the really big financial institutions at, at the national sovereign level, the ones who actually control this $300 trillion right. or whatever it is, right so that everyone actually knows this is part of the conflict of is globalization actually ever going to get better at the local level for everyone. Okay, got it. Yes, ma'am. There's a woman in the front row there. Maez, can you give, oh, or, oh here we go, the other mic, Michaela, thanks. Yeah, that lady there, thanks. Uh, thank you, Yuan Wang, news reporter. Um, I would like to ask a broader question to our panelists. Do you think uh, there is a growing tendency in today's international relations, U.S.-China, but also others, a tendency to wield economic interdependency as a political weapon. And if this is the case, what are the implications for the world economy and international politics? Thank you. 
Okay, good question. Uh, and then the gentleman way in the back there, Michaela. Thank you very much for the uh, conference and the great ideas. Um, I'm Mark Manier with the South China Morning Post. And so a lot of the um, issues around AIIB have been about uh, China developing a new model for transparency and a new kid on the block and this sort of thing. But it seems oftentimes that the big bulk of Chinese development lending and financing still goes through the China Development Bank, and that they tend to do things much more in the old traditional way of working with elites, of not working with your communities, of uh, being able to sign multi-multi-billion dollar deals with the sign uh, with one flip of a pen instead of going through uh, processes. Um, I'd be interested um, for Dr. Yu, perhaps, and for Raymond, on how you see the relationship between these two, and whether you think the AIIB methods can change the really heart of power in, in Beijing. Thank you. Okay, great. We've got three questions there to, uh, uh, to, to answer to all or any of the above. I don't know whether, um, Peter, since the related, I think, your department, uh, $300 trillion, uh, why sure. isn't that sort of part of the story? You yeah. did touch on it in your introduction. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, it is part of the story, and certainly there is increasing interest, uh, as we heard from Nancy um, and others on the panel, for institutional capital to flow into infrastructure investment. The challenge is that, that uh, much of this capital is pension funds, right? So your teachers, your firefighters, your, um, your public sector employees, and the question is, do the pension funds have the permission to risk that money in what could be seen as speculative and high-risk investments in emerging economies? And what the pension funds and insurers generally will say is that, look, at, we need some risk mitigation instruments that allow us to get more comfortable that in the event of a, a sovereign default, in the event of currency convertibility, in the events of changes of uh, law or contracts, um, that we have an ability to recoup our investment from this particular um, uh, project. And, and it's those instruments, in fact, that the MDBs, the AIIB included, are, are hard at work at. Um, and one of the things that I mentioned in my comments is that, that China has demonstrated a certain uh, you know, ad, uh, ability, aptitude, to manage these risks, at least for its own account. So let's see if we can't bring some of that thinking together with some of the work the MDBs and others are doing in the capital markets to develop risk instruments that allow more capital to flow to infrastructure investment. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, MDBs? picking up on that. Um, so if you look at the total amount of finance that MDBs provide to the private sector, not their lending to governments, but to the private sector, it's about $40 billion a year. <coughs> Okay, so a billion with a B. B, compared to trillions of dollars of infrastructure. Trillions of dollars of SDG-related investment, a lot of which is infrastructure, but there's other investment. And then they mobilize about $60 billion, so one and a half dollars for every dollar they commit. It's, so it's, it's, it's a marginal role. So um, the, the MDBs are not playing the intermediary role that Peter was just describing between connecting the, you know, the, these infrastructure needs with um, big, large-scale private investors. So you, if you ask why, um, it is because their own business models limit the amount of risk that they can take. 
They are AAA related institutions largely. Their shareholders want them that way. Their shareholders want them to earn sort of market level returns. And so the risk adjusted returns that you can expect from a lot of these investments, especially in low income countries, are not particularly attractive returns. So there's got to be an intermediary that can bridge that gap. Um, and so I would argue and have, and have um, done some research or, and proposals on you have to create an off-balance sheet vehicle for these institutions, for the MDBs, that's much more risk tolerant and that has a below market financial return goal in order to um, make that gap. So I guess the point I would make is this is not a small change in the system. This is a big change in the system. I, I don't, I'm not arguing you should throw out the MDB system. I'm just saying you need to give it another tool to be able to make it much more catalytic than it is. Great. You, do you want to comment on that or also uh, on the, the CDB, on the China Development Bank? And is it being shaped at all by some of this broader conversation about standards? And Because that has been the wrap on the, on the CDB, that it does it sort of the old-fashioned way. Is it changing at all? Yeah, l let me just uh, mainly respond to the to this question to mm -hmm. the to the, let, uh, the the second question. It's basically about the standard that uh, our panelists have already uh, touched on. Uh, I think there, there are different standards from the uh, fr from the uh, environmental and the social standards and the, the pricing. Uh, the debt issue, and also the uh, procurement, uh, whatever. So all the standards, and uh, first point is uh, the CDB has got uh, a lot of attention, I think, mainly because of its size. In terms of its standards, my reading of the, of the literature is that it's, it's, it's not the best compared to the, uh, the um, MDBs, or, but it's uh, simply not the worst, so it's probably above the average. So that's a, that's the first point I mentioned, and the second point I want to say is that uh, uh, if we talk, if you talk to Chinese policy banks, including the China Development Bank and also the Exim Bank, actually probably they are too successful in the past. Too really, they, they they don't think they need to learn from everything, learn every, everything from the MDBs. They think the MDBs are really too slow. They are too uh, conservative, too cautious, so it's too slow. They, they think they, 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 they don't need to learn everything on that. So, so Chinese approach is saying that the, the standards, the, the major issue is what should be the best standards. So there is still a, a very big debate. I think not only within China, but also internationally. So how to really uh, accommodate with it, to learn from each other. So that's, a, that's a, 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 the second point. And uh, uh, in some aspect, I think China itself, Chinese uh, policy banks, does need to uh, improve. For example, how to better use the blended financing. China has established the new uh, development cooperation agency. How to really uh, um, combine the aid, ODA, with the non-consensual financing. So that's an issue I think China should uh, uh, should learn. That's also an international issue that all the others. And for the environmental and, uh, and social standards, I, I want to take this opportunity. Actually, it's not that uh, 
uh, every aspect of Chinese standards are, are the worst. Let me take an example. Even MDB sometimes are learning, are, are, are actually are seeing how China does it, like the hydropower. China has established the largest number of hydropower plants. Actually, it's, it's a social policy about the immigration, how to do immigration. Actually, uh, it's, 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 it, uh, I, I learned from the very senior operationers. They, think, they see that Chinese uh, standards on this aspect is the best in the world. And even the World Bank and many others, they are learning from Chinese experience. So, so I just try to say well, what's the major point? Uh, what's the Chinese uh, understanding and the concerns on that? And China does need to learn from many things, like the, uh, uh, the fiscal risk. I think it's not the other MDBs that, that should change the CDB. That's a risk control, because every standards are also about risks. So how to control risks as a major incentive for the Chinese policy banks to change, to improve themselves. And I think on this aspect, in addition to the, those technical standards, trust is a very important issue. I want to turn back to the Paris Club issue. I think China, US, on many, on, on many issues, they share common interests, but lack of interest, uh, trust. So, so that's, that's a, something that uh, uh, I want to add. Good. Okay. Matt, could I, can I sure. just emphasize a point here? And I think we're talking a lot about standards and you know the Western standards versus Chinese standards and and the convergence of these standards. And I think that uh, this was my second recommendation: is that there is much to be learned on both sides. I think, and that getting together and reviewing these standards and agreeing to a set of global standards would help not just China and the West, but obviously many of the countries that are involved in these projects also. So I think. Many of the topics we're, we're touching on have to do with standards. I agree. Um, Stephanie, I don't know if you want to take on that other question about economic statecraft and it being used as a political tool. I'm happy to take it on because I have some thoughts on that. Well, but, uh, just <laughs> If I could just other. add one sure. thing into the question. I think that it's an interesting question, AIB versus China Development Bank or China XM, because then you're not really making it about kind of US versus China. You're talking about different models of policy banks within China, and I think to, to kind of um, echo what you just said, I think there's a question then of what are the operating mandates of those institutions, and that really gets at the different business models. If the mandate is to just go and develop but not really worry about the viability of the project that you're lending to, you'll have a different uh, reaction than if you're actually worried about your own viability and the project's viability and the risk assessment needs to reflect that. So I, I think it's a great question, an interesting thing for us to, to think about. And as far as the, the question of economic interdependence, it's, it's also interesting, we were talking before we came out here to think about kind of the arc of the engagement in this geo dialogue and the five years that it's taken place because the world has changed and certainly the US-China relationship has changed quite a bit over that time. And I think previously there was a feeling that economic interdependence actually led to greater stability because you had common interests. Now it seems to be reframed as that economic interdependence actually creates vulnerabilities that can then be exploited. And so I, I think, to your question, I think we are, at least in some areas, in that space. But I think it's that the dynamics of the discussion between the US and China have changed 
more than kind of the, the reality that our economies are still very much interconnected. And as this panel has discussed, there are lots of areas of common interest. And so I, I think that as a backdrop that, still. That's exists. a great sort of benediction and I hate to um, uh, disrupt it, but I'll just add to it by saying, um, I think that you know the story about if, 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 if I owe the bank $100, then the bank, um, I, I have a problem. If, if I owe the bank a million dollars, then the bank has a problem. And similarly, I think we should be careful about you know, the, the risk to, um, uh, as Stephanie said, we are interdependent and um, it, it's a double-edged sword, as somebody said before, if we try and use that in an inappropriate or a, a political way. Um, and I think we're discovering that in a lot of areas. So, um, so with that sort of joint benediction there uh, and hope for sort of broader perspective, which is what we're trying to bring here today, also in this dialogue with SIS, and thanks especially to Yayu for bravely being up here as, as the one uh, uh, partner uh, uh, representative here. Um, but uh, thanks to all the panelists. Please join me in thanking them for a great presentation. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.